Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your hosts, Dodd Abernathy, Jeff Kopsetta, and Henry Sledge. What's up? What's up? What's up? OG5. <laughs> it's been a, been a silly night. Um, we usually don't get right into it, but um, as you may have heard, it sound, sound, the theme song was a little quieter than normal. Henry and I just did like an 18-minute OG5 podcast for the Patreon users, and we went to start the show. We're all amped up, tuned up, ready to rock, and our theme song soundboard crashed on me, and so I had to quickly find our theme song and our deep archives of all the crap on my computer and launch it in Winamp. Yes, I said Winamp from 1999. They do remake it, and I am using it, but anyhow, <laughs> welcome to the show, everybody. Thanks for hanging out for another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II podcast. Jeff is not with us tonight, but joining us once again from Alabama. He's in the dark. He's in the shade. His light bulb burnt out. He's joining us from the dark side, one Mr. Henry Sledge. Henry, how are you doing tonight, sir? Doing well. How are you, man? I'm doing well. Um, before we get into the World War II stuff, um, Henry and I, we, we kind of, you know, sometimes we'll use these episodes where it's just the two of us. Um, as a house cleaning episode, or maybe we'll get off topic a little bit and just get caught up. We'll just wing it a little bit. We really have no, not that we always have show prep, but we have even less show prep than we normally do on shows like tonight. But um, last week, or the week before, you briefly brought up the fact you had to have hand surgery. And then as we were getting into it tonight, you are wanting to go down that alley before we went on the show. Because mm-hmm. as I was saying on... Um, the history behind the page podcast with Sarah, the history chick the other night. Um, one of the things about Henry, Jeff and I is we get along fantastic, but we don't feel that like we have to hound each other. So we'll do a show and we won't maybe talk to each other for three or four days. And then maybe the day before the morning of we'll, we'll get caught up in stuff. And so, you know, I haven't really talked to you since last week. How is the hand going? Well, so, so what happened, Don was, I had to have, it was an operation on my thumb tendon. They call it a trigger trigger mm-hmm. release because my thumb was just like the, something about the or pulley release is the name of tr- trigger thumb is the the problem, and then pulley release is the procedure. And then on my elbow, my right elbow, they had to do an epicondyle debridement. Easy for you to uh, say. And that was you know, um, and. So, you know, recovering from that, the, the damn elbow, the problem is um, it's got a little bit of a some, some fluid on the top of it, a hematoma. So Ooh. I've got to go see them tomorrow, and they're going to determine if they need to do anything about that. Uh, hopefully not, but uh, Wednesday will be three weeks since the surgery, and this fluid is uh, still kind of gathered over the top of it. I'm just going stir-crazy, man, because I can't work out. I, you know, it's it's cut into all my – my activities, I mean, it just sucks. You know, when you work out and you're regularly exercising, as you know, when something pulls you out of that groove, it just sucks. It may depresses you. It frustrates you. Um, not only whatever, whatever gains you made, you see them erode. And not only that, but when the time comes, you know, the thing about working out, whether it's running, riding a bicycle, anything, anything that gets you into zone two or zone three, yeah, you have to do it consecutive consistently, and you it's it's 
80, 87% of it's mental, and I would say, I think it would be fair to say that 60% of it is habitual or pattern-based, meaning you have right. to do it, you have to form a schedule, and once you get out of that schedule, and once you get used to not doing it, and then right. you go back to do it, it's even more of a kick in the gut, because let's say you're riding 10, 15, 20 miles, or let's say you're doing an hour at the gym you know, with your arm or whatever, swinging a All hammer, right. gardening, pottery whatever sort of thing one may do with their hand and then you have that situation and you go back and not only is your hand sore but just the overall it's you're like wow this sucks now i gotta i gotta work twice as hard to get back to where i was that i wasn't oh, yeah. even totally happy with then you know you're struggling to get this point you feel like you're plateaued you're like man i haven't made any gains in a while or i haven't lost weight in a while i haven't trimmed any time off whatever your goal may be and you've plateaued but now you would just mm-hmm. wish, oh, I'd give anything to get back to that plo- plateau that I was at. Yeah. I was so disappointed. The plateau would be great, but well, you're I the- don't know. I mean, I, I think July 14th will be like the five-week mark, was, which was <laughs> he implied, the surgeon implied that, um, you know, that would kind of be when he would clear me to, to get back to, uh, like, working out with weights and stuff. But I, I don't know with this hematoma, you know, the, the fluid – which is not uncommon. I mean, nobody's like, oh, my God, that's really bad. You know, it's not like that at all. Well, that's a good thing because I was going to ask you, what is the worst-case scenario with not doing anything about said fluid? Well, she so his assistant called me this morning to check on me, and um, I said, well, you know, it's not getting any better. It's not getting any worse, and um, so they're going to see me tomorrow. But, you know, she, she said, look, he, he may let him put eyes on it. He may want to. Do a debre, you know, debreed it, which is go back in, which I hope they don't have to do. Um, Can't they just put like a turkey baster in there and suck it out? Well, and that that's an option too. Or he may not do anything, but you know, whatever. I just want to get cleared so I can get back to living what I, you know, doing what I normally do. Well, in our little pre-show, <laughs> pre-show, you were getting ready to go down that road, and I told you to hold off because I can relate by proxy. The sure. reason I ask about the fluid is last. Monday, following our episode, the podcast, I went it's a little behind the scene action. It's we start here at nine thirty at night because a um, there's three of us, three different time zones, and by us starting at nine at six o'clock Jeff's time, so it allows him to get home from work, and you know it's eight o'clock Henry's time, and that was kind of always the marker because I have three parrots, and my parrots don't go to bed until seven o'clock, and if we try to do this in the daytime, you just hear parrots in the background. Sure, for this podcast, we can pretend we're in Saipan. Maybe it'd be good ambiance, but for the other podcast, it's out of place. But anyhow, so we do the show. It usually runs 120 minutes or so. Jeff and uh, Henry bounce, and then I upload it to the website, which then deploys to all the podcast apps. And then I got to write a description. And I could take an extra 20 minutes to update the website, but I don't. I go do the things that I got to do to go to bed so I can get up in the morning, and then I update the website at work. And that's why... For those of you who do both, that's why the podcast is available Monday night, but not available on the website via the link and the information till Tuesday, sometimes Wednesday, depending on how busy I am. It's also kind of my little thanks to you guys who download it from the app. You know, you get a little head of, head of everybody else. So last Monday, you and I get off um, mm-hmm. and I go take a shower and I'm actually in the water closet doing my pre-shower ritual that people do because we're human beings. And I hear the sound, and it's Carrie. She's crying and struggling. 
and I opened the door. Apparently, she had to use the restroom as well and went to our daughter's bathroom, who had just gotten out of the shower. Now I'm in Florida, and tile floors are all the rage. Oh, yeah. And when you have a daughter who is 60% Hispanic, Mexican heritage, and 40% Native American, she has that super long, thick black hair that doesn't dry without actual effort too well with a towel unless she actually tried to dry with a towel and apparently her practice is to stand on the floor and comb the water out unbeknownst to us i'm sure you see where this is going so carrie proceeds to use her bathroom she shuts the door locks it turns around steps on the wet towel floor and in her words like an ice rink she twists her right ankle falls down straight on the tile floor on her kneecap and she weighs almost nothing her her Knee has no protective layer, if you will, and she went down hard. Now, luckily, um, our daughter knows how to pick uh, bedroom doors, which, let's be honest, in the house is not hard. You just need something to twist the little thing inside. You can do it with a bobby pin. Luckily, she was able and had that skill because, once again, I was in the bathroom. I had no knowledge this was going on, and she was able to break into the bathroom thus rescue Carrie, and that's when Carrie made her way into our bathroom, and I learned what had happened. I had to pick her up and carry her to bed. Her knee hurt. It was a little swollen. Next morning, we wake up, and it looks like she has a small potato under her kneecap, and her ankle is completely blue. Oh, boy. Now, luckily, with my new job, I got a boss who is all about family, and his rule is take care of your family, then come to work. So I told her, hey, let me know. I can take urgent care. There's one not even a half a mile from my house. She said, well, I'll see how I feel. So... I went to work, told the boss, hey, I may need to take the extended dance remix of my lunch. Told him what happened. He said, why wait, go now. I said, well, let me call her and convince her. So anyhow, I left work, took her to urgent care. She had an x-ray. Nothing's broken, but she has a buildup of fluid, hence me asking you what the worst case scenario. And they told her to go get an MRI at a orthopedic. Yeah. That was uh, seven days ago. Here we are seven days later, and she still hasn't scheduled the MRI because last summer she heard her arm kayaking because we kayak fish prior to this accident every darn day. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if through paddling or what, she could not do this. She could not raise her head, a hand above her head. It could only go to here. So she went to a orthopedist and had an MRI for her shoulder. Nothing was wrong. Here's some pain medicines and a $300 um, copay. So she's a little hesitant, but I told her, oh, so fast forward. No, there ain't no fast forward. She got crutches and the the same cast your daughter would wear if she hyperextended her knee while playing volleyball. And we've all seen the high school girl with that that leg cast on, that soft one. Yeah. And uh, so she's basically been laid up in bed. And much like you were saying, she's like, I can't, I can't do nothing. She can't fish. Luckily, she's a school teacher, so she was already out for the summer for school, so she's not missing any work. But she's essentially bedridden because not only is it her knee, but it's her ankle. And so the crutches are a pain in the ass. And so I've been wheeling her from the bed to the bathroom via an office chair, which is doing wonders on my carpet, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. And so the other day I came home from, or Sunday, I came home from taking a kid to the beach because we didn't, we went to go to the beach on Father's Day prior to the accident. But as we were talking on last episode, it rained. So we just went home. And so I... You know, the kid's been stuck in the room all week. Carrie's been laid up. She can't do anything. Basically, I agreed, hey, take the kid to the beach. So we went to the beach. I came home. I passed out on the bed, and I hear, ow. 
She had to use the restroom, and instead of waking me up to push her across the room in the office chair, she thought she'd do me the favor, and she used the crutches and went to shut the bedroom door so she can get by and fell again, luckily this time on the carpet. Mm-hmm. But anyhow, four days, that happened on Monday. By Thursday, her foot still looked like it was just attacked by a swarm of bees. So her foot, and it's blue, but they said it's nothing's broken, but she must have a really bad fracture or sprain. So hopefully, maybe tomorrow, she will call and schedule an uh, MRI for me to take her to. But I can definitely understand how you feel about not being able to use an appendage. Uh, she can't mm-hmm. use hers. Luckily for you, it doesn't require someone to push you around the house. But no. I definitely feel your overwhelming desire to get out and do things because by proxy, I can't do things either because I got to be here to, you know, cook right. and help around yeah. the house. And so I'm not, fit, and it's raining every night. It, we had thunderstorms up until 20 minutes ago. So not only the time I get home, I got to cook dinner and all that stuff, but it's also raining. And so I've been basically hanging around the house too. So I definitely feel your pain on that. Uh, while we're, off topic um thank you guys for your continued support uh, we it's been a while since we got any emails so please email us at mail call at wtsp world war com. i understand we don't give that email out every uh, web, uh every episode which we need to we need to get that out there so you guys have it memorized so you can whenever you have a question you're driving down the streets i wonder what henry would think you can just pull out your cell phone and shoot us an email or well, i wonder what jeff <laughs> speaking of wheelchairs jeff sent me a uh, did you get that text? Yeah, I saw that. I Jeff saw that, picked yeah. up like a 1941 wheelchair. I'm like, oh, I need that. Carrie blew out her knees. But so Jeff's got the wheelchair. Christmas in Connecticut because yeah. there's a scene where the, the the two stars, you know, they were on a destroyer. They got sunk by a U-boat and then picked up at Southern Hospital for a while because they were at sea for like 18 days. That's a big on a raft. That's a big item. Now Jeff's like most of us. Most of our gear is relegated to a room. At what point is that stuff going to start wafting into the living room and his old lady going to have to put her foot down? Oh, like, yeah. The wheelchair, that's a bit much. Like, I have a reproduction 1950s Coca-Cola cooler, which is in my living room, right? well, my dining room area right now. It's usually out in the garage, and she kind of looks at it like, get that thing out of here. But I will say that thing comes in, that thing was a lightsaver when we had our last hurricane. I had no power because it's an ice mm-hmm. chest. You just put your beer, drinks, and soda in there, fill it full of ice, and it stays nice and cold um yeah as i said um thursday wednesday 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 night i was on the um behind the the history behind the page podcast with sarah you can follow her on instagram at the history chick 1941 and that is chick with a k some people spell it c-h-i-c no you gotta put a k at the end of that bad boy including the 1941 and you can also find her on youtube and as i said on her show the other night Thanks to Henry, we do have a new feature on our website, which is the little tab that we call Appearances, where you can see our appearances on other people's projects. And as of right now, there's three videos of Henry on World War II TV. There's one of Jeff on the aforementioned um, history behind the page. And then obviously when she posts the episode I did on her YouTube channel, you can see it there. And that page will continue to grow. Um one last thing, and then not so World War II, but I want to bring it up just because it falls under the Digital 410 Media, which is the, the family we do here. I'm a kind of a content creator. Not successfully, but I do three podcasts. I do have a YouTube channel, TikTok, Facebook. I finally hit that like beloved milestone at every content creator. I currently have a video trending on TikTok with 1.3 million views and climbing. So I find oh, that's that great, one, man. What one, is what's what's the vid? <laughs> it 
I am not one of these people who try to get clout or use poor happenstamps by random strangers in public. And that's what this video looks like. But if you watch the secondary video, you see the history. Here's the history. Interestingly enough, Carrie, before injuring herself, she is starting to make a name for herself in the fishing community amongst the TikTokers because we go out kayak fishing and we always live stream on TikTok. And she gets more viewers than I do because, well, she's a woman and people like to watch women do cool things like hunting and fishing. And um, a company reached out to her called Earthy Paws and they make dog toys and dog treats and and stuff and anyhow they I think sent, I've heard of them. <clears throat> they sent uh they reached out to her and they sent her like our, our boss interior like two boxes full of just high-end quality dog toys with the thing where she was supposed to do a little review video on TikTok. And so she sent it to the digital 410 PO box, which you guys can find on WTSP World War com under uh contact us. That is our official <sighs> PO box. And so I had to go to the UPS store where the official digital 410 PO box was at. And I went inside, got her earthy paws. Now, when I got out of my car, nothing was going on. Walked across the parking lot, walked inside, opened my PO box, grabbed the box, and walked out in a true life 10 seconds. One thing I learned from working radio is people overestimate how long time is. They think 10 seconds is four seconds. When I worked in radio, I could literally leave my studio, walk down the hall, use the restroom, wash my hands, come back within 30 real seconds, and that wasn't even rationing. So because time's actually rather long. So I was literally in the in the building for two 10 seconds. And as I walk out, it's 94 degrees, a UPS man walks up to me and says, Hey, can you come document this? This guy's pissing me off. Now as I have said in a follow-up TikTok, I was not carrying a um, stenographer machine. Nor did I have a shirt on that said Notary Public, so I'm not sure what sort of documentation he was expecting from me. But he asked me, and those were his words, to document this. And he pointed over, without a context, his UPS truck and some cars. And so I just assumed that he, he either hit someone's car or someone hit his truck. He couldn't find them or something happened, and he needs a way to document it. Maybe his battery's dead on his phone. I've since found out UPS will not allow their drivers to take their phones with them. And so... I proceeded just to walk over and I pulled the phone out of my pocket, but it was still locked because I didn't see what the hell he's talking about. So he document what? And that's when he said, and I'm going to censor it. He said, Hey, this effing guy left his dog in the car. I'm like, what? Now it's 94 degrees outside. And there's a dog in the driver's seat panting. I was like, well, how long has he been there? He's like at least 20 minutes. I'm like, Hey, hmm. it's hot floor. Yeah. I said, yeah, that's a big deal, man. Now this conversation literally, 20 seconds into it because I, I mean how long did you just ask me to tell that story now 20 seconds i said well is, there, is the door unlocked he said i don't know so i i went to reach for the door and all of a sudden behind me i hear f you guys i was only inside for 12 minutes to at which point the ups driver says i've been here for 20 minutes offloading my truck you were here before i got here so f you and then that's when i turned on my phone and literally the the video is like 20 seconds but it's the ups driver telling that guy they're cussing at each other f you f you and the ups driver tells him f you you don't deserve that dog you shit ass owner and then there's another one or two f you's but this thing has gotten 1.3 million views because people are so thrilled that this ups driver is telling this guy off for leaving his dog in a hot so car in florida what was the I mean, yeah, that's a big deal, man. What, what, so what was the result? What ended up happening? The guy got in his car, turned it on, and left. The whole interaction was three and a half, you know, probably, I don't know, the whole video in itself is probably 38 seconds long. Mm -hmm. 
So you were never really involved in it. You no. were just shooting. And bait. so at the end of the video, I said, I said, well, you know, in the state of Florida, we could smash out that guy's window legally. And then I put the phone away. But the way you get video views is content where people have something to say about that topic and or create arguments. And so not only do people love the UPS, man, love the UPS, man. But then you got people, well, why didn't you break out the window? And, and oh, yeah. I've created follow-ups. <laughs> One, I was... I had like 200. Was the AC on? To which I posted a video. Well, if the AC was on, don't you think the guy would have came out and said, hey, dipshits, my AC's on. Why don't you go piss off somewhere else? You know, that's what I would say if someone's accusing me. Yeah. But no, you can hear him start his carpet and he left. I posted that. That happened uh, Monday, last week. Actually, the same day Carrie blew out her name. No, Tuesday. Mm -hmm. That happened Tuesday. And um, it happened on the way home. So that happened at 5 p.m. We do the What's in Your Head podcast at 9.30, much like we do this one. When I checked at 9.30, the thing had 5,000 views. Well, eh, it's not bad. I've had some blow up like that. And so, dude, you guys won't believe what happened. This stupid thing happened. I put this dumb video up, 5,000 views. Show lasts two hours. I get off. I check. It has 30,000. The thing got 15,000 views in two hours. Wow. Like, Whoa. Next morning, I wake up. It's at 80,000. By the end of the first full day, it was already at 200,000. And so by today, almost a week later, it's at 1.3. It just hit 1.3 today. And um, so it's crazy to see. And, of course, now other people watch my other videos. So anyhow, a little milestone there for the Digital 14 Network. Nothing we created. Just, you know, I was telling I was telling people, the two crazy things that happened in my life happened to other people I was just a witness to. Carrie blown out her leg and this oh, interaction yeah. between the UPS guy. And, um, and that, so you and I were talking about, Hey, let's talk about Saipan and maybe, uh, what's going on in Guadalcanal this time in history. Yeah. And so I was refreshing my Saipan history and I was watching some YouTube videos before, while I was taking a shower, uh, before taking a shower after I got off the bike mm -hmm. and it occurred to me and I think Henry, <laughs> I think Robert Leckie covered it in his book, but I don't recall any real coverage of it in your father's book. Obviously, this isn't Europe. This isn't, um, you know, a, a trip across the channel with the occasional U-boat in the water. Mm -hmm. These guys are in the Pacific. They're traveling all over via boat. Did your father ever get caught up in any sort of pre-invasion naval battle? where his ship that he was on was whether being strafed by planes, getting shelled at by Japanese ships. I mean, was he ever, I'm, I'm sure it happened to people because obviously when you're doing an invasion, there's oftentimes not always, but depending on the availability <coughs> of their air force there, we all know about the kamikaze and all that stuff. But do you ever recall him ever talking about getting stuck in a pre-invasion like naval battle? Um, that's a great question. The short answer is no, but I, I will say, Don, you know, as you know, I've been, combing through his unpublished portions of his manuscript. Sure. And, and there's um, two, two things come to my mind on that subject, not naval battles. Okay. But um, one of them right after Peleliu, when they got on the sea runner to go back to Pavuvu in the Russell islands. Now, what exactly is a sea runner for those? The sea runner was a merchant Marine. Uh, well, it was a troop ship. It okay. was not a U.S. Naval vessel that is that is the the ship that when k-35 or when first marine division came off of uh 
Well, I don't know about the first Marines because they came off several weeks before the fifth and seventh Marines did. But when the fifth Marines and seventh Marines <clears throat> came off of Peleliu, uh in October 44, mid-October 44, they boarded the Sea Runner Do you that think then that, took them back. Was that like a replacement for the George S. Elliott that sank, that dropped them off to begin with? Well, dropped off the first uh, Marine to begin with? It, it would have been a lot like that. I mean, yeah. I'd have to go look up some – I just – in my mind, the name Sea Runner is fresh because he said we boarded the Sea Runner to, to ride back to sure. Pavuvu. Um, and there, there was a little, an interesting thing. I don't know that I want to really get into that, but I will say this: coming when he boarded ship, uh, and he rode the troop ship was the um, it wasn't it wasn't the General Howes because that's when he took from Noumea up to the Russell Islands after advanced infantry training. Uh, but let me see the President Polk. That was okay. the troop ship he boarded uh, in basically right after Christmas, nineteen forty three, uh, in San Diego to head out to the Russell Islands and get in theater. Um, well, no, he took the President Polk from San Diego to New Caledonia. Sorry. But the President Polk, you know, that was his first exposure to a troop ship. Um, and so they were, he wrote, and and some, and this didn't make it into with the old breed, but That's, he talked about how um, they were being told, you know, like severe disciplinary action for anybody throwing so much as a gum wrapper overboard. Mm-hmm. Cigarette you know, butt. because if, if, any lurking submarines saw a pattern of garbage, they would know, man, it's a troop ship. Yep. And troop ships, you know, troop ships, oil tankers, and freighters were soft, slow targets. Mm-hmm. Juicy, fat, slow, desirable targets for a submariner, sure. as opposed to a warship, which was a lot faster, more heavily armed, and, and could defend itself. Now, I, I don't want to be a corrective Sally because I used to say submariner as well, but I have recently a submariner. I have recently learned from the fatal dive as well as a submariner who caught in a podcast. Um, basically, the only time submariner is used referring to a watch by Rolex, but it's actually colloquially, okay. colloquially if you don't want to piss off our friends in the Navy, they're submariners. A submariner okay, well, is a watch. <laughs> I pride myself in trying to not mispronounce words, so thank you for telling me that. Yeah. So. You know, if you're a submariner, then then it's a big, nice, desirable target, you sure. know, a troop ship. But, um, but yeah, the 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 other incident, I'd kind of like to hold that back because that's that's going to oh, be no. in my book when I when no, I ever and get that's that what done. that's what I was just I was going to ask you is like, ooh, is there any stuff from the boot camp and enlistment times that was cut out of the book for? for oh yeah, time? tons of stuff on that Pavuvu that you know that's awesome because I mean so. that that's the sort of thing that I th- think the audience you know, the fans of his, his work. And cause that's one of the things I enjoyed about you'll be sorry is the chapter yeah. of it was, if it wasn't for Sid Phillips, I would have never known that they were given, you know, all their toiletries, including a bucket. And then they were docked $25, but they only made $21 a month. So you basically your first check and $4 out of your second one were already t- uh, property of the United States Marine Corps. Cause you actually had to pay yeah. for your gear that they gave you in boot camp. I never knew yeah. that. Yeah, the bucket issue. I remember my dad telling me about that when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah, the bucket issue. So let's talk a little bit. Um, I'm going to let you kind of kick us off, and I'll jump in because I'm always running off the mouth. Let's talk a little bit about Saipan or maybe where we were in Guadalcanal this time of year. Well, yeah. So, all right, what is this, June 27th? Yeah, June 27th. So yep. 
if you, you know, I just always like to like, especially since we're in this, you know, every year for the next few years is going to be the 80th anniversary mm-hmm. of something in World War II. Sure. So, uh, what, June, you know, late June of 42, uh, just to kind of put things to contextualize things, I mean, what would have been going on? So, you know, the Japanese were probably uh, hard at work trying to get what became Henderson Field. Uh, you know, obviously it wasn't Henderson Field at that point, but they were, you know, they were working away on that, trying to get an aerial presence so they could begin to figure out how to sever the lifelines to Australia. Uh, your your buddies, the Coast Watchers that we talked about and had some great conversations about, I'm sure they were they were trying to perfect their communications networks all up and down the Solomon Islands. Yeah, the interesting thing um, about that is they gave each coast watcher a radio call sign much like a radio station but usually it was a three character call sign that was either the initials of their wife a daughter a mother or something along the line so it was usually their first Mm -hmm. and first middle and last name initials and that's how each little group would sign off with their own little radio call sign yeah that's an interesting little tidbit but if, if you think about it so the marines landed on guadalcanal august 7th of 42 so june you know, the Japanese are hard at work trying to fortify the airfield. Um, they've probably got plenty of air power up in Rabaul at this point, and they're, they're trying to start bringing some of those ferries, some of those, some of those uh, Japanese naval aircraft down to into the Solomons. Um, you've got the other thing going on with them would have been, you know, late June of 42, uh, you know, they're the – Combined fleet was probably licking its wounds after still trying to recoup. For yep. Um, you know, now if you jump to June, late June of 1943, you know, at that point, they're licking their wounds after completely being kicked off all the canal. Uh, they're starting to move on up into the central and northern Solomons. You know, uh, I don't think Bougainville was quite going to happen yet, but they were, um, they were looking at New Georgia, Rendova, uh, you know, Munda Point. Uh, we, of course, were looking to make forays into that and, and project our military hegemony into the into that zone so we could more comfortably start bombing Rabaul. Um, and then if you jump to, to – that would have been June of 43. If you jump to June of – late June of 44, well, then you got – you know, the 27th Army Division and the 4th Marine Division. And which other Marine Division was it that uh, hit Saipan? Second. Was it the 2nd Division, 2nd and 4th? Was there a 3rd Division? I think well, it was, it, was, it, was, it was similar to Guadalcanal in the way that as the 5th Marines were attached to the 1st Division. So, um, hold on. I, I was looking at this prior to the show. Let me just back up my Google search here. Uh, so, United States. So it was made up of, well, let's get past the naval forces. So Task Force 56 um, consisted of the 4th Amphibious Corps, headed up by Holland Mad Smith. And then, so, okay, so it was the 2nd Marine Division. Attached to the 2nd Marine Division was the 6th Marine Division and the 8th Marine Regiment, as well as the 2nd Marine Regiment and the 10th Marine Regiment for Artillery, as well as the 18th Marine Regiment Engineers. So that made up that the 2nd Marine Division. So that's who was attached to them. Yeah, 8th Marines were 2nd Division. Yeah. yeah, and then the 4th Marine Division had the 23rd Marine Regiment, um, which was on Blue Beach, 
which I guess I should have said that for the other one. Uh, then Yellow Beach was 25th Marine Regiment. Uh, floating in Reserve was the 24th Marine Regiment. And later on, after D-Day, the 14th Marine Regiment came in with artillery, as well as the 20th Marine Regiment for the engineers. And then, as you said, the 27th Infantry Division in the Army had uh, mm-hmm. 16,440 officers and enlisted men. <clears throat> and they handed uh, Blue Beaches. And the armor consisted of the 762nd Tank Battalion, as well as the 766th Tank Battalion. And attached to them were the 102nd Engineers and the 502nd Engineers. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah. Well, Sa- you know, and Saipan was such an iconic moment in the Pacific War because Saipan was really the linchpin of the inner defensive ring for Japan. Not only that, but it was the first true Japanese-owned territory that we had fought on. Prior to that, everything was stuff that Japan took that they did not own prior to all the nonsense. So Saipan was like... Because Guam was a U.S. mandate, so they took Guam, but that had been ours. Yeah, Guadalcanal, clearly. And and as well as this was the first real sign of civilization. I mean, they had towns and cities, if you will, there. I mean, they had developed... You know, buildings. This wasn't just that. Oh yeah, heavily heavy civilian population. And um, and the landing was by no means a repeat of Guadalcanal. It wasn't just hey, well let's land and walk in. It was they took a licking pre naval yeah, battles prior to the invasion, and uh, they like I said, I was refreshing actually watching you know, the post-war footage, but made of the day. And it's interesting. They would give the casualty numbers, but they would never give death numbers. They would just say, and of course, some of our boys didn't come home. But they were talking about, you were talking about leading into this midway and how Japan was kind of licking their wounds from midway and then licking their wounds from getting kicked off Guadalcanal. The pre-naval battle, if you will, as small-ish as it was, was the first time since midway we had any real substantial engagement with anything representing the Japanese Air Force. Well, yeah, and carrier air power because the Mariana's Turkey shoot. Yeah. Came about as a result of the naval battle surrounding which, you know, June of 44. Yeah, you know, absolutely. So that after you after Midway, then you had Battle of the Eastern Solomons, you know, which was carrier, you know, an iconic American Japanese carrier battle. That was August of 42, then uh, October 42's Battle of Santa Cruz. After that, there was no uh, American-Japanese carrier battle until roll the clock ahead to Saipan, Great Mariana's Turkey Shoot, June of 44. We sunk like um, three or four carriers and then a handful of miscellaneous ships, something along those lines. Well, I mean, by that time, I'm not sure which was the Taiho. One, but that was a new Japanese character carrier. Unfortunately, they didn't have a whole lot of qualified aviators at that point to put on it. Um, and, and I don't want to—I don't want to belabor this point because we've gone over so many times. But whenever you you say something like that, I I I can't help but point out to how lucky's not the right word, but how beneficial it was to us that the tactics of the Japanese Empire and the insanity of Hitler led to so many dumb ideas and. Sadly for them, poor treatment of their troops and misappropriation and misuse of their manpower. Mm-hmm. You know, the amount of pilots they lost due to the early on kamikaze stuff. 
and things like that. And now they're stuck with, you know, rushing to find replacements. And that was a good thing. Obviously, it sucked to have the kamikazes, but the fact that they're blowing through pilots at a much faster rate than if they would have just simply waited for us to shoot them down, that's kind of beneficial to us, just like with the bonsai chargers. Yes, it sucked for the guys on the front line, but when we're talking a numbers game and it's who has the most troops over a long period of time and they're just wiping out so many young men by doing stupid strategic stuff, well, it benefited it actually, us greatly. I just I just realized when you bring up the bonsai charges, so Saipan, another iconic thing about Saipan, um, not only you know losing that was a breach in the inner defensive ring for, for, for Japan, but that presaged a complete shift in their tactics yeah. because you look at what, first marine division was going to face and while Saipan was going on they were training up in the russell islands you know my father among them on pavuvu well then you know here in, in september they're going to go to peleliu well on saipan you began to see this it, it wasn't practiced to the finely honed degree that it was later but that was where they began to use the defense and depth strategy. Yeah, because they started to realize, and, well, we're losing guys and this ain't working. The Yeah, what, make them pay for every yard. What was the original? Th- uh, stop them at the water's edge was the original thing. It was, okay, we're going to do bonsai charge. Everybody's job is to take out 10 Marines for your one life. And they were hoping the math game would work out, and it didn't. Right. And, so they, and there, there actually was a bonsai charge on Saipan, but not, not, as, not as many as they had hoped. Yeah, nothing like what we saw at uh, Luna Point or AK Alligator Creek, you know, that the piles right. among, I mean, the, the substantial <laughs> amount of resources and life on their side. If the, if they wouldn't have lost so many men in that engagement, just imagine how much longer Guadalcanal would have taken to capture. Oh, oh certainly. But but the tragic thing, you, you've already brought it up, Don, was you began to see heavy civilian involvement at Saipan, um, you know, Garapan Point when they had families uh hurling themselves off and that had because. you know it's one thing to be a hardened young 19 20 year old army and marine personnel who was trained to dispatch the enemy but when you're seeing you know basically the code of war going back the longest time unless you're a complete sociopath and a monster is leave the women and children alone and so right. when you're seeing these this may be a little harsh, but I'm going to say it. When you're seeing these fanatically brainwashed Saipan citizens who were con- told and indoctrinated that the United States Marines and Army were full of rapists and cannibals and that if they right. come and capture your city, they're going to rape your women and eat your children. And you're, you're a 19-year-old American from Nebraska. You know, you're, this is your first deployment. You've been there through these battles, and now you're seeing women throwing their babies over cliffs and then jump. Th- 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 I could only, I couldn't even imagine just trying to even get that sentence out. Just, oh yeah, that had to be just so. I don't even know how you would go on after seeing that. Well, I, I, I think, yeah, you know, for for young Marines and soldiers, yeah, who that was their first encounter with the Japanese. I mean, to see that they were coaxing these civilians, which, and of course, that just roll ahead to Okinawa in 45 was practiced to an even greater degree. Because mm-hmm. once uh, again, but, you can justify killing Japanese because it's kill or be killed. They're coming to kill you, but you are you think you're liberating these people and all of a sudden you see them walking over a cliff and there they go. Like, what the hell? 
<clears throat> that just goes you the tactics that the empire did, whether it was with their own soldiers or the people they ruled over with, you know, don't know the phrase, whether you want to say in brainwashing or, you know, indoctrination or what have you. That's just, that just adds to the horror that these guys had to face on top of the stuff that they're already experienced. And that's all. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and, you know, and then when, when, when the Japanese did lose at Saipan, I mean, it, that really from stuff I've read, I'm sure you've read too, you know, from that point forward, well, it was one of their um, war ministers. I'm not sure which, I don't think it was Tojo who actually said this, but you know, they had done the math. They knew that if they lost Saipan, B-29s could fly from Saipan directly to the Japanese home islands. Mm -hmm. They, they, they knew that was going that that was coming. And you know, they, one of their officials said hell is upon us. And it really, I think they had hoodwinked a lot of their own citizens up to that point. We know that they exaggerated victory claims um, and, and aggrandized a lot of things that should not have been. But really, after Saipan, you know, that gave the lie to everything. After, after they lost Saipan, there was no – everybody knew, which, I mean – I don't think too many people on the home islands with the rationing and, and, and the things they had endured, the shortages of material and resources, um, they saw these things coming. But after they lost Saipan, there was no more pulling the wool over anybody's eyes. And I think Saipan as well as – I think they saw this as well in Okinawa. I believe it was brought up in both Helmet for My Pillow and with the old breed where the Japanese got so desperate that they would just go to their – hospitals and anybody who could even remotely shuffle they'd give them a pitchfork or a stick or anything and just send them down the hill yeah anybody who can just if you could maintain your balance and even do a slow shuffle you're going in and that's just that just goes to show the one the lack of compassion but two just the overall desperation of their and their tactics and their mind state oh yeah well i mean i remember he said it in many interviews. He told me, I mean, my, my father told me that we were told preparing for the invasion, you know, after Okinawa when they thought they were going to have to uh, invade Kyushu, um, they were told you better get used to killing women and children. Yeah. So not to jump too quick, but you know me, I like to, when I hear somebody say something, it triggers a thought. I like to hit it while we got a pause. It's called riffing, man. Your dad brought it up in his book. They didn't bring it up in the miniseries. So if people mm -hmm. have read the book, how much of a kick in the nuts and demoralization was it when they finally captured Okinawa that they were essentially said, okay, turn around, walk the other direction and start picking up all the battle trash. Oh, that, had, yeah, that, that was, you want uh, to talk about make work. And yeah, what was it? Anything, man, he, anything over 30 cow you had to pick up? And then they had to bury all the Japanese mm -hmm. dead. Was it over 30 or over 50 cal? Maybe over 50. 30 is a little bit small. But yeah, the, <clears throat> the 30 out six and the, the pistol cartridges don't worry about. But yeah. all the all the tubes that your oh, clover leaves came in, all anything over 50 cal, trash, uniforms, dead bodies. Just mm -hmm. Basically, here's a sack with a stick with a nail on it. Get to work. It's It's community service time. That was so, let's see. June of 45, not sure the exact date. Um, 
but but and some great stuff in the original manuscript that some great tidbits that didn't get published. Uh, but when they got down near, I think Kanishi Ridge was like K Company K thirty five barely got into the fight on Kanishi Ridge by the time and by then the Eighth Marines the Second Marine Division had had been brought in, and the Eighth Marines were a very good outfit and had a great reputation for us from Tarawa. So, uh, you know, the 5th Marines were really happy to see the 8th Marines show up. But, um, yeah, Kanishi Ridge was kind of like the last taste of combat for my dad. And they, it, there were other units. I think the 7th Marines had a little bit more involvement on Kanishi than the 5th. Um, but, yeah, I mean, when, when they finally realized that the Japanese had been, had been ground down to a nub, there was nothing left, and, and the – Essentially, the Battle for Okinawa was over. There was a, a, an enormous sense of relief. And then what you're talking about. Okay, everything over 50, pick it up, stack it, bury enemy dead. You know, they were infuriated. Well, I understand, you know, make work. I understand maybe let's clean the environment up. But have the guys who just got off the transport who are, you know, still full of, yeah. you know, who haven't. Don't make the guys who had to suffer through it and watch their friends die to create the mess, have to clean that up. Let the guys fresh off the ships who came from overseas, you, you know, who are nice exactly. and full of piss and vinegar and looking for something to do. Not the guys who are dying of dysentery and, you know, dealing with the wounds that they got both mentally and physically, you know, just cause you didn't get shot. Doesn't mean you don't have blisters the size of Texas on your feet and don't mean you're not oh, half yeah. malnourished and dehydrated and, you know, got, post-traumatic stress disorder and any little sound and just, you know, all that. It's just the idea that, okay, guys, here you go. Here's a sack. Start picking, stacking, and and shoveling. It, it wasn't very often that, that, I mean, really, I don't think there were too many times growing up I heard my father say anything negative about the Marine Corps. But, man, that, they were all infuriated at that. Yeah. Did he uh, say And there was, I think, uh, I can't remember if it's in the unpublished writing that I've been through or in, in the book, but I will toss this out. He and a couple of guys, Snafu might've been one of them. Um, like they were taking 10, you know, they take a little break and they go over to this nice, like they, they, th this was, you know, probably a couple of weeks after the shooting and everything. And they find a nice little meadow with trees and everything. And there's no dead bodies. Mm -hmm. or anything. It's actually really nice. And they go sit down and break open some K rations. And then somebody comes over and NCO. Yeah. Y'all need to get out of here. This is for officers only. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that was in I his book. Oh, it is in the book. Okay. Yeah. Good. He's basically, yeah, so. they found like a little patch of just uh, the one little area where the grass hadn't been burnt away, blown away. It's just a place that yeah. they could sit down in some softness and sit in the shade, get out of the sun. And they were basically rousted out of there because some lieutenants and, you know, Hired yep. brass want to come. So even that, they finally found a little bit of peace. Nope, that's too good for you guys. Go sit in the mud. Oh, yeah. Yep, that was definitely in the in the book. But no, see, and I think that's the kind of stuff that, as we said earlier, people be interested when, you know, your, your project comes to fruition. But Saipan, by no means, I mean, we hear about, you know, the mud and new, new, uh, Britain and, you know, and Okinawa and the heat and Peleliu. Saipan geographically was a huge pain in the ass too. Cause it was all limestone and, and coral rock faces. The Japanese are held oh, up yeah. in and got to go. Well, go ahead. Here's another thing about Saipan. So, you know, Saipan of course was 
Um, and, and I'm kind of giving a little teaser for the article Please. that's about to go to press in World War II magazine um, that I wrote that article about Marine and Army cooperation, inter-service mm-hmm. rivalry, and then inter-service cooperation. And, you know, Saipan, of course, was the famous Smith versus Smith, you know, Holland Smith, Marine Corps commander, overall commander, and, and then General Ralph Smith, who was 27th Army Division commander. And, you know, the Smith-Smith controversy because Hall and Mad didn't think General Ralph Smith was moving fast enough. They had to, they were headed toward a particular point. Don't remember which one it was. Fourth Marine Division was on one side. Another Marine Division was on the other. 27th Army Division was in the middle. And the two Marine Divisions pushed ahead and the Army Division lagged behind. And so, of course, I think Hall and Mad. Wasn't it like the... The Marines almost had unintentionally, just the way the ge- ge- geography played out and the way the planning played out, the Marines kind of, I don't want to say had easy going, but they were kind of atop the ridge line where when the Army was starting going through the middle, they were kind of down in the valley. Correct. And yeah. so they were getting plinked from the top, and so they had a lot tougher sledding to go because sure. everybody knows in combat, though he who has the high ground holds the advantage. Well, when you're not only in a high ground, mm-hmm. but you're almost in a borderline box canyon granted they had a way out behind them but you're basically walking into a valley and trying to work your way up and you have to go through the rigors of flamethrowers and tanks and dynamite mm-hmm. you can yeah, only yeah, move and, so fast yeah and of course and then you know hal and mad smith was not and he was prejudiced against the army everybody knew that but sure. uh, he was certainly not going to tactfully express his frustration. And he basically ordered uh, Ralph Smith, 27th division commander off the Island and, and not even, wouldn't even let him say goodbye to his subordinates and the guys he'd worked with for a long time. So, uh, and that, that obviously generated a lot of um, ill will and, and unhappiness between norm between the soldiers and the Marines. But, um, but, you know, they, when push came to show, they got the job done. But that that was certainly an iconic moment of of the Saipan battle. Yeah, it's it was uh, it was tough sledding, and, and the thing was and the problem with Saipan too is that it had two airfields. You had one in the south and one in the north, and so mm-hmm. you know by the yeah you can capture the first airfield, but if you know the navy, well the marines who are launching off the navy ships or the navy pilots, they aren't keeping the Japanese at bay. You know they. The airs, air cover plays a huge advantage on infantry warfare, at least back in World War II. And mm-hmm. from what I understand, and I think you pointed out, the biggest difference between Marine Corps pilots versus pilots from the other branches, the Marine Corps pilots were essentially trained to, not only were they trained to cover the infantry, but they actually trained along with the infantry, so they understood infantry tactics, and so they they understood what was required of them when they were coming to provide air support. They knew how the guys were going to move. They knew where to put those bombs. And the Marine Corps air support was used really as a overwatch opposed to, you know, different things. And so that's, you know, they, the Marines heavily relied on, on their air cover. And, but when you, when you're landing on an Island that has two air force bases, Mm-hmm. Luckily, at that point, you know, the, the Japanese Air Force was running, you know, on fumes then, too. Could you imagine trying to invade that island if they had a fully staffed Air Force at both runways? 
that naval battle would have been even worse. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, you know, the, as the kamikazes got to be a bigger and bigger threat, I mean, that's then you had more and more Marines on aircraft carriers. Yeah. You know, because so much of their war had been land based. Uh, but as the kamikaze threat, which, you know, the kamikazes changed the face of so many things because, you know, that I think that had a lot to do with getting the Marines on active aircraft carriers rather than just being transited from one place to another on aircraft carriers, actually having them, you know, fly active missions off on and off aircraft carriers. Um, but it also probably, of course, I guess by that late in the war, you'd already seen Navy, uh, U S Navy air groups had begun to move away from the, you know, like early in the war, Coral Sea Midway, you know, there were, you had a certain number of fighter bomber, or you had a certain number of fighters, certain number, which would have been F4S at that point, certain number of SBD Dauntless dive bombers, and a certain number of torpedo bombers. And as the war went on, you, you know, the the air group, the composition of the air groups is changing. You started to have fewer of the dive bombers and torpedo bombers and more of the fighters. Again, because of the kamikaze threat, they needed more fighters. No, I don't want to put you on the spot because I don't know the answer, which is why I'm asking it. And well, you know, I may not either. But we all we shoot. all have our own strong points, and one thing we don't cover too much on here because well, none of us really study all that much is the Navy. But we know of, you know, you got the famous you know Cactus Air Force, and then we know all you know about the different famous air crews over Europe. And but you and Jeff are more into the aviation side. Is there a particular Navy air crew that kind of got famous for any sort of missions or runs that we that would kind of be a household name for those who are in the know? Well, uh, the one that comes to my mind would be VF three, Fighting Three, VF three, uh, Navy Fighter Squadron three, uh, because that's the squadron that produced Butch O'Hare. Okay, you know Butch was Butch O'Hare shot down. I think it was. I mean, early in forty two, like. Might have been February of 42, he shot down five G4M Betty bombers. Um, and then, obviously, O'Hare Airport's named after Butch O'Hare. But um, I think VF3 was also home to Jimmy Thatch, who developed the Thatch Weave. Okay. like Which, do you, do you understand what I'm talking about when I say that? Yeah, like Thatch Roofs? No, the thatch weave, Jimmy Thatch. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. The 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 aeronautical yeah. maneuver. The F4Fs <laughs> like, covering each other's <laughs> weaving back and forth. And instead of turning with a zero to take it head, you know, to try to turn with a zero and an F4F, there's no way you can do that. So they learned stay, you know, diagonally off each other's tails. When a zero would try to turn toward them, one of them would turn into it and they could cover each other's tails. And they I think O'Hare and it was either yeah, I think O'Hare and, and Thatch went up and, and worked those tactics out themselves and discovered pretty quickly that it was damned effective. Now, I know for those of you like, Don, how dumb are you? Why would you say Thatcher's? I watch a ton of Naked Afraid. <laughs> We've been watching like marathons, especially since Carrie's laid up that in the show alone. So when we're not fishing or working on, I'm watching a lot of shows about people trying to survive. In the woods. And so when you're thinking, when you said the thatch weave, I'm like, 
You're trying to tell me that the thatch weave roof system button invented by like some some like people living in the Amazon like thousands of years ago. So that's where my mind was at. So forgive me for getting stuck up on that. I watch a whole lot of survival shows. But hey, you know, you that that makes me want to say this real quick. Sure. So come October, mm-hmm. when we will be talking about the anniversary of the Battle of Santa Cruz Islands, which yeah. I mentioned earlier, which was the last American versus Japanese carrier action until later on in 1944, you know, part of the Saipan operation. Um, I have a friend that I work with whose uncle was in, I think it was VF-72, VF-72 or VF-71. He was an F4F pilot, uh, and he was shot down during the Battle of Santa Cruz Islands. And um, my buddy, uh, John Franklin is his name. He has shown me a box full of his uncle's uh, photographs and and various things that, that he owned. And uh, in it is a letter from his air group commander, from a squadron commander who knew him quite well and wrote to his dad describing in detail what happened. And when, when it comes on to October, I'd like to read that letter on our show Please. and have John on too. <clears throat> so I wanted to bring this up because we do this from time to time. And it's kind of fun. I was thinking I, I, I YouTubed the battle of Saipan and I watched the, you know, probably 1945 footage or whatever that they compiled with the, the war footage and all that. And I got to thinking, uh-huh. When was the last time Hollywood or the movie industry per se put out a movie specifically about Saipan? And can you think of any off the top of your head? Yeah, um Saipan. Hmm. Now when Talkers damn... doesn't count because they cover Saipan, but it wasn't specifically about Saipan. Wait, Windbreakers? Yeah, Windbreakers. Uh, that <laughs> that's one of them. But no, apparently, and I haven't seen this movie in 2011 oba the last samurai came out okay never seen it never heard of it i'm looking at some screenshots on uh on rotten tomatoes um movie information after world war ii ends with his imperial surrender a japanese captain decides to lead his unit into one last battle on saipan so apparently this is at at the war's end and he said hell with it we're gonna rock and roll um Genre drama, or okay, so this is actually a Japanese film. Well, actually, it says original language is Japanese. They do have some American actors playing the Marines here. Um, sadly, you want to guess what Oba, the last samurai, <laughs> what kind of ratings we have on Rotten Tomatoes in 2011? Uh, 36%. Not that bad. No, this is okay. This is 2011 before we went completely anti patriotic in this country. So, 53% is the audience score no reviews from major movie reviewers so it actually has zero uh, as far as uh top critics but three fifty three percent with the people now interestingly <clears throat> enough prior to oba um looks like hell to eternity is probably the biggest they show when when windbreakers on here but then they have the battle mm-hmm. battle for saipan um, but yeah, it looks like Hell to Eternity is probably. Let me uh, see when Hell to Eternity. Let me put that in the old Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> Hell to Eternity. 
Okay, maybe not. Hell to, yeah, Hell to Eternity. 1960 was Hell to Eternity. Okay. Let's see what it got on the old Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, it looks like, yeah, it's one of those films that pulled a lot of, uh, they shot in black and white so they could use real war footage. Uh-huh. Doesn't even come up on Rotten Tomatoes, so no reviews there. Let's see, who's in this bad boy? Um, stars, Jeffrey Hunter, David jo- uh, Janison, and Vic Damone. So, oh, David Janison. Yeah, yeah, I remember him. David Janison. But yeah, um, let's see. <laughs> when his adopted Japanese-American family is sent to the um, to Manazanazar after uh, Pearl Harbor, a young Chicago enlists in the Marines to become the hero of the Battle of Saipan. Man, M-A-N-Z-A-N-A-R. His family is sent to Manzanar. Man, I don't even know. I don't hmm. know if that's an internment camp or what. I don't know. I don't know. Well, let's Google that. Let's see where, what the heck that's making reference to since we're just shooting from the hip here. National Historic. Okay, so. Oh, yeah. Manzan, Manzanar. Once again, M-A-N-Z-A-N, so Manzan, NAR, N-A-R, is a, uh-huh. is a site of one of 10 American concentration camps where more than 100 internment camps, as we like to call them, but, you know, modern day, we change terminologies. Site of American concentration camps where more than 120,000 Japanese Americans were in, uh, incarcerated during World War II from March 1942 to November 1945. This particular place is located in the... State of California, and it is a historical park now. Um, yep, so apparently in Hell to Eternity, the one of the main actors is a Japanese-American whose family was sent to an internment camp, so he enlisted in the Marines. And that was out in 1960. But other than that, there was really no, you know, pictures specifically in modern day does you know, designed to tell the story of the Battle of Saipan. Yeah. So maybe that's something hopefully somebody will do in the future. Well, I mean, it was such an iconic battle for the reasons we've already talked about. I mean, you know, because like really that was the beginning of, and, and the topography afforded those opportunities for, you know, defense and depth. Although really Pebble was where it, it got enacted uh, on mass. And, and honed to a very fine degree. Um, of course, Colonel Nakagawa was a tactical genius on that plane, but, um, but yeah, I gotcha. What you reading? You read anything new? Yeah. Well, still I am, uh, I'll tell you exactly still in conquering tide being told second volume. And I am, Page 282. I haven't made any progress in my book just because uh, dealing with Carrie and all the things going on in the house. I just, yeah, I haven't had any leisure time to sit down and uh, to dig into that. But um, we do want to thank each and every one of you for continuing to listen to the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. If you listen to the podcast for any amount of time, you know that we used to broadcast live from the At Computer Studio, but it's no longer At Computer Studio because, well, they're no longer around. There's a lot of small businesses thanks to the pandemic. So, if you have a company, and maybe you're a company that provides services nationwide, because obviously it's a worldwide podcast, but even if you're not, um, you just want to support the show, you want to maybe sponsor the podcast studio and uh, 
have it named after your company. Or if you're interested in uh, maybe buying some advertising for super cheap rates, send us an email at mailcall at WTSPWorldWar2.com. Uh, just put subject line advertising and we will hook you up with some very, very, very affordable advertising. Uh, we're not looking to get rich. We're just trying to cover our nut over here uh, with all the overhead because uh, podcasting does have overhead involved in it. And if you aren't a business owner but you want to help us, you can head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com. Click on the Patreon link, which I tried. I've been working on the website. Um, but yeah, click on the Patreon link, like, and uh, sign up. We have three plans, but you know, the dollar a month is more than what we need. So if you want to sign up for the dollar a month plan, great. If you want to sign up for the $3 a month plan, fantastic. And if you want to sign up for the $7 a month plan, we love you so much. We'll send you a free t-shirt. And as we are saying at the beginning of the podcast, one of the perks of the sign up for Patreon is you get access to the OG five podcast, which is basically a podcast from the guys here at the network. Um, no real format. We just talk about whatever. And uh, Henry and I just recorded one prior to this show. It's a short little one. It wasn't scheduled. It wasn't intended. We were just having fun before the show, talking music. Yeah, talking about Irish punk. Talking about <laughs> Irish punk and and uh, kids who listen to hip-hop music through bullhorns in their cars, thus cutting out the, the bass, which is confusing to me. But uh, that's signs that I'm getting old, I reckon, which I'm getting older in two days, but we won't go down there. Uh, but, Uh-oh. Thank you guys so much. Um, we don't have the out music because, well, computer problems. Uh, and uh, so anyhow, thank you guys so much. I believe Jeff will be back. Nah, no. Oh, oh, we need to decide this right now. Um, do we want to take next week off for 4th of July? Yes, we do. So yeah, there, probably be a- there will be no show. I will put up a best of a redeployment episode. Now, Monday is the 4th. I will try to get one put up prior but if it's a day late, don't get mad at me because I like to, you know, celebrate holidays too. So I will, I will find time to put up a redeployment episode. But thank you guys so much for your continued support. And please um, head over to YouTube.com. You can also find a link on what's the scuttlebutt or dhigh410.com. Please like, subscribe, watch some of our videos. We're right over. We're, we're looking down the barrel of meeting the requirements from YouTube for monetization i think basically we need like 45 more hours but there's like 600 videos on my channel and and so there's plenty of content so if you want to go watch heck all you gotta do is go watch a handful of what's the scuttlebutt podcast these bad boys are almost two hours a piece so you want to get support the show you can do it that way too everything helps and uh get yourself a cool t-shirt like i have on now but that's enough of the shameless plugs thank you so much jeff i think we'll be back on the next episode with more tales of from the road. And then following that up, when we get closer to the anniversary, I think we're doing it closer in the month because of the holidays, but we will have the aforementioned Sarah, the history chick at, at the history chick, 1941 host of history behind the page. As we found out when she's on her little, her little interest, the one we all have it. For Jeff, it's Air Corps. For me, it's M1 Helmets and Canteens. And for Henry, it's Air Corps as well. But everybody has that one little topic that, that just strikes her fancy. And for Sarah, it is the USS Indianapolis. And so she is going to come on. And basically, we're going to hand the show over to her. We're going to let her, we're going to pull her string and let her uh, run off of the mouth like I tend to do. And then we'll jump in occasionally with some follow up questions to keep her going. But I think we're going to have a pretty interesting deep dive into all things USS Indianapolis, which I'm looking forward to. Cause as we said earlier, we really don't cover enough Navy stuff on here because well, you know, there's a lot of information and we can't know it all. And so if you have information that we don't know, and you maybe think you can come on the show and help 
you know, kill some time, provide some content, and you want to possibly come on the show as a guest, we're more than happy. Email us, info at d-410.com, or more importantly, mail call at wtspworldwar2.com. Henry, you got anything coming down the pike you want to get out there? Yeah, like I mentioned earlier, my article goes to press here in just a few days for World War II. That'll be in the autumn issue of World War II magazine. Um, and right now, that's the only thing I want to mention. If at all possible, I don't even know if they would have such a thing, but maybe reach out to them right around the time of the release uh-huh. and then say, hey, is there a link on your site where people can look to see where maybe they can find it in their area? You know, what the coverage distribution or something, or, you know, that's, that's a good idea. Or we can put the link up to their website, but I'm, I'm sure if they're printing magazines, they'd like to move it. Or maybe you can order directly off their website. So maybe we can get the link to their website where people can order a copy. That, that would be cool. And because, hey, man, in my author bio, you know, got my picture, my little bio paragraph, like every person who has an article in there is part in on the author bio page. I put one of the things I put for me is co host of. What's a scuttlebutt podcast? So what we're all we're all going to buy a copy, and then we're going to inundate poor Henry's mailman, and we're all going to mail him our copies and demand that he use a silver sharpie to autograph <laughs> our, our copies of his magazine, his oh, article. Ha ha, nothing. I'm serious. I'm, I'm gonna we're gonna blow up your mailbox uh. and uh, get that bad boy signed. But yeah, we'll do that on behalf of myself and Jeff, who is always here in spirit. We will talk yep. to you all next week. This is when usually the theme song goes, and my daughter says, we're very inquisitive as if she's disgusted. This has <laughs> been a, what's, <laughs> I can't even say it. This has been a Digital 4 per t- 410. This has been a Digital 410 production? Yeah, <laughs> it's that bad. Anyhow, thanks, guys. laughing. Yeah, <laughs> we'll talk to you all next week, and I got to hit this button on the stream, which for some reason... Looks like it's frozen up, but whatever. Um, if you're watching, no, uh, I don't know why I'm saying it. It's weird. I'm looking at OBS and it's showing our logo, but I'm watching the phone and we're live. But anyhow, we will talk to you all next week. Boop, 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 boop.